which was his history of spreading vaccine disinformation to the Black community. In fact, in 2021, Robert Kennedy produced a film called Medical Racism, the New Apartheid, which used the real history of medical racism in the United States to peddle conspiracy theories that COVID vaccines were an effort to harm Black communities. He also has peddled conspiracy theories about autism and African-American children, all lies and all nonsense. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we dig a little deeper, where we go behind the headlines, and we bring you those stories that people are talking about. Uh, I talked uh, earlier in hour one about my trip to St. Louis uh, two weeks ago to attend a press conference and a teach-in. And at that press conference, I announced that I'm representing 200 descendants of enslaved people uh, who we now know their labor was used to build one of the most prestigious Jesuit universities in this country, St. Louis University. There are 27 Jesuit universities across the U.S. And for the last eight to 10 years, they have been engaged in this reconciliation and remembrance project where they are tracing their relationship to slavery. And what they are discovering is not pretty. Uh, they are discovering some really horrific and horrible uh, aspects of the Jesuits' involvement with slavery. For many, many years, the Jesuits peddled this notion that somehow they were good slave owners, obviously a misnomer, but they wanted the world to believe that as socially progressive Christians, that they treated their slaves somehow better than other slave owners. But through these uh, remembrance projects and this investigation that they've done, they have revealed that like other owners of enslaved people, they worked them uh, countless hours, they deprived them of food, they broke up their families, uh, they used harsh punishment, including beatings and whippings uh, in order to force not just adult men and women, but children uh, to do ungodly amounts of work. And in our case, the case of me representing these descendants of uh, enslaved people in St. Louis, we uh, calculated, we used one of the nation's renowned experts to calculate the value of that stolen labor from those enslaved individuals because uh, the Jesuits did all this great research, but they stopped short. They didn't tell us what the value of that labor is. And renowned expert uh, from University of Connecticut shared that information. He did the calculation. He did the math. He used historical wage data to tell us that the value of the wages that were not paid to these enslaved men and women is somewhere between $363 million to $74 billion. And that's even modest, uh, depending on interest rates that you use and, and different other calculations. And I think it's so important that as we have these conversations about enslaved people and how they were treated and what happened to them, and we start to trace the lineage to help people learn more about their ancestors, we also talk about the tremendous contributions of enslaved people to the building of this country. And so I'm super excited today in this hour, I'm going to be talking to John Mills. He is a software architect, a researcher, and a founder of a nonprofit. And he has been doing this work of helping families find 
their ancestors, their, their enslaved ancestors. And also in this hour, joining me is Wendy Tyson Wood. She's the president of the Greater Waterbury NAACP. She's been working with John on this project. So we're going to learn about how John got interested in this work, uh, what are some of the discoveries that he's made, what are some of the obstacles, as well as some of the things that he considers victories in this work, and how other people uh, one of the things that happened at my press conference in St. Louis are people coming up to me saying, hey, how can I trace my lineage? How can I do a genealogical study to find out who my ancestors were and what contributions they made to the building of this country? So make sure you stick around. We're going to be talking to John and Wendy about this very fascinating topic of discovering our ancestors and their contributions to America. When we come forward, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and in this hour, we are talking with John Mills and Wendy Tyson Wood talking about John's very interesting work of investigating and tracking down ancestors of Black folks. Uh, these ancestors were mostly enslaved people or they were African-American Civil War veterans. Thank you so much, John and Wendy, for joining me for this segment. Uh, as you both heard me talk about, I got really interested in this work as I uh, became the lead attorney with some families or for some families in St. Louis, Missouri, who are engaged in this kind of work. They were notified by this Jesuit university, St. Louis University, that they were the direct descendants of uh, some enslaved people brought to St. Louis from Maryland for the purposes of building St. Louis University. Uh, tell us, John, how you got involved in this work and how you made the discovery of your ancestors. No, absolutely. And I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for that. I, my journey started a long time ago. You know, I'm a child of the 70s. I actually grew up in California. My father was heavy at that time into the Panther movement and the US organization and all that was going out in California at the time. And he used to try to preach into me like this self kind of value and your skin color and your features and, and all of those things. And then by the time I got into the late 80s, early 90s, and I had my daughter and I was in corporate America, I realized I actually had an unconscious bias against myself, against my own skin color. Like I had to self-interrogate how I was operating around corporate America to come to that conclusion. And once I came to that conclusion, I was a little nervous about raising my daughter in a country of, with people who may not have come to that same place I had just come to and thus maybe operating in ways that are holding up tenets of a past time, right? So I was trying to figure out how to attack that. And it took me some years. My sister started doing genealogical research into our family in the late 90s. And uh, I, my grandfather had passed away in 87. I knew him well. But I didn't know anything about his past. And she started showing me documents of he, he had sisters and his parents. I knew nothing about them. He like came to California in the Great Migration, never talked about leaving Texas. We found he was chased out of Texas. We found out his brothers and sisters, he was the youngest. They were older. They were born in the late uh, uh, 1800s, early 1900s. He was born in 1911. He was a young hothead. Was He was in fear of being hung because of the way he was acting. So he fled in the Great Migration in the 30s to California. And so he just never talked about it much. But when we chased it down, my sister chased it down, we found out um, his grandfather was named Ned Mills, was an enslaved man freed on Juneteenth and 
in uh, Henderson, Texas, and his parents, his mother was died in the great uh, flu pandemic in 1918. We had a death certificate, my sister's showing me. And it, we had a, a, a cemetery where she was buried at. It was Hickory Grove Cemetery in Kilgore, Texas. So we, 2003, we flew to Texas. And we get to this cemetery, we walk through it. It's pristine, it's beautiful. We can't find one family member that we know is there in that cemetery until we realize there's this lightly driven path along the side of the cemetery that leads into the woods. And when we walked into the woods, then we started finding people that we had on this tree we had developed. And um, that was just a spiritual moment before me, like a, an, an awakening. It was like these people were uh, degraded and segregated in life and death. Um, and, and not only that, you know, you know, now I had this man named Ned Mills, my, uh, my great-great-grandfather that I now knew I got my surname from, only to find out that was just the name of his last enslaver. So now I had to interrogate this name Mills. I was like, wait a minute, I saw that with a DNA kind of component to it. And now I realize it was just, you know, the decision point, a decision probably he didn't make originally. But now, you know, it's this, this white man's surname. I carry him out my legacy into slavery. So that started me on this journey of digging into my own roots, finding um, enslaved people. My sister found most of them. I started doing work outside of our family later on. But I just started finding many stories like that one. I would find individuals that I was related to. Like, for example, my, my father, very fair-skinned, had been all his life. Everybody was always telling me we had Native American blood. Come to find out it was an Irishman who had raped one of our descendants, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had Irish blood, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, you start finding all these alignments um, to things you heard of, but you didn't realize. I, I guess I should have figured it. I'm an African-American man living in America. But I just did not have these deep ties to actual people. These people became real. And mm-hmm. once they became real, you know, I wanted to dig up and get this information for other people, you know, hand it off to other people, get them to have the same feeling I had. Um, and well, that's you this, John. What did you learn about this enslaver Mills? Well, th- there, there were a lot of them. There was a the man by the name of David Mills, another man by the name of Robert Mills. They were bl- brothers. They were really wealthy. They were the largest slaveholders in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so they, they had, a, they had, they had a, over 100 enslaved people. They actually had their own money. It was called Mills Money. So, I, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it's a large, it was, it, it, was, it was a large kind of enslaver um, where that surname comes from. Um, um, so, and, and he, so he had underneath, you know, in his plantations, he had lots of people that worked as blacksmiths. After my um, uh, second great-grandfather was freed, I see him still operating in farming, but also as a blacksmith, like he, you know, he's still operating in that kind of a, a function. But yeah, this wasn't just like the everyday, um, just a common enslaver. This was like a very wealthy individual. It also told me that, you know, if I come across another individual by the name of Mills with an enslave, you know, an enslavement path, it doesn't necessarily mean we're related by, you know, uh, genealogy. Because this man owned so many enslaved people that they took on that surname, and you know it's just another mechanism of how we kind of lost, you know, our tie um, into who we are and where we came from. And so, yeah, I wanted to dig into that more, and, and it was a power when I found all this out. Right, there was a power in it. I became really proud of these people that what they did. Their greatness wasn't that they, you know, made a lot of money or that they were some exceptionalists that like you know, conquered some land. Their greatness was that they endured. They persisted. And because they persisted, I exist. 
Like that was their greatness. So now I would I wanted to highlight that. Like we don't hear those stories now. We commonly hear the one in a million. I wanted to hear the million now. Yeah, right. I wanted to hear that side. So um those are the people I hunt down. I hunt down the unknown stories of people that people don't really acknowledge or highlight for this strength of endurance. And then I try to tell their stories. And once we dig deep enough to get like a fuller picture, something that has the perspective of an African-American. A lot of the stories that we hear are told based on documentation that was created by white Americans, right? right. It was from that context when that information was produced. Um, and so like I wanted to interrogate the documentation that I was researching into my own family and the people that I'm researching, I wanted to interrogate it from my perspective and I wanted to prospect and present it from, you know, the right. descendant of the enslaved perspective. So that's what I do. I present it from that perspective and then try to find current day descendants to hand it back to. Well, let me ask you this, Wendy, when I was in St. Louis, I was, most people felt like John, they wanted this information. They wanted to figure out how they could do their own genealogical study. Uh, but there were some who said, why are you doing this? Why mm -hmm. do you want to find out about those, pe those people mm -hmm. uh, that happened so long ago? Uh, the people who enslaved them, they're dead. The, the enslaved people are dead. The people who here, the descendants, the, the beneficiaries of those enslavers, none of those people were there at that time. Have you heard that kind of pushback? And, and what do you say to those people? Yeah, most definitely. Um, there is a, what I find, there's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear of conflict. There's a, there's a resistance to information. And that information is empowering to individuals like myself, who is third generation freed slave. I mean, we're not even talking a hundred years, you know, we're talking third generation free slave. There's it's empowering to individuals who've been denied their history, their culture. You know, I go to a lot of festivals and I marvel at how these 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 festivals um, celebrate themselves in dance and word. And I also, at the same time, I'm, I'm lost because I'll never know my dance. I'll never know our cultural tribal colors. So working with John um, to, to bring that information to life is empowering. It's about uh, knowing who you are, knowing where you've been, and knowing how you can navigate in this world as a person of color, a black woman, a black male of color, how are you going to navigate this world? Things we can never change. But when you know what they went through and how they survived, you know, you can breathe a little deeper. Like, you know, you're, you're more confident that, you know what, those my people, I have more strength than I think I have. Um, so when I hear comments like, you know, why are you talking about Africans and why are you talking about slavery and slave owners? I said, it's my story. It's my story. I would never deny anyone of the Jewish faith their story of the Holocaust or the Asians, uh, their story of how they were treated when they came to this country. It's your story. It's how we honor our ancestors and how we prepare our children. It's very important that we prepare our children. I'm glad you brought up the Holocaust because, John, you know, a lot of Jewish people define themselves as survivors of the Holocaust mm -hmm. or they'll tell you that their grandmother or their grandfather. But as Wendy said, in our community, 
to talk about being the survivors of the enslaved mm -hmm. or of an enslaved person is met with a different attitude. It's not received in the same way. If someone says they're a survivor of a Holocaust, there's almost like an instant <laughs> deference to that person and you know the horrors that they experienced in the Holocaust. And clearly the Holocaust was absolutely horrible. Six million you know, people killed for no reason. But do you see anything changing since you've been doing this work? Are people beginning to recognize that we also are the descendants of a horrific, you know, period, uh, you know, that that is deserving of the same level of deference as other survivors? Well, what, what I see very clearly in, in, in the lectures that I give in the places that I talk are that the African-American folks that listen to the stories and, and the information that we present are recognizing what I recognize early on. And, and that is, I wasn't taught this information. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it was intentionally un, undocumented and hidden. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a purposeful kind of um, uh, component to us not really being interested in it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you find that often. There's a lot of African-Americans that never even attempt to do this, this research and know very little about uh, their history. What, so what I've noticed is in doing this, I'm, it, I noticed that uh, individuals of African descent are becoming more interested mm -hmm. in finding their own genealogy. And I think that's a win because I see researching your own genealogy and then highlighting and, and exalting the people that you descend from. That's an act of resistance because you weren't supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. These people were supposed to be hidden. That was yep. the intent. And so as soon yep. as you start doing that, you're going against the grain. Mm -hmm. And that I think I, I definitely see changing as I speak. And, and yeah. so what you just said was education, 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 that people, a lot of the uh, resistance, the trepidation, the hesitation in discovering this information is because people have not been exposed to it mm -hmm. uh, and have been taught that there's something negative about being exposed to it because that's some of the feedback I was getting like, why don't you leave that alone? Leave that in the past as if, again, by discovering it, we are creating, uh, you know, some kind of dissension that, that we're being Absolutely. Uh, contentious mm -hmm. people, you know, we're being divisive yeah. just by wanting yeah. to know our history. That's so what they try to I want to talk about how we further educate people so we can combat mm -hmm. those attitudes and then what people can do uh, yes. to start finding this information out about their own family. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and in this segment, we've been talking about tracing your roots, finding out who your ancestors are, John Mills has been doing that now for some time, and he's working with Wendy Tyson Wood, uh, who is the president of the Greater Waterbury NAACP. They are working on building a, a statute in Waterbury, uh, that's Connecticut, I believe, in my city's right here, uh, honoring an enslaved ancestor named Fortune. Uh, tell us about that, Wendy. I understand that this enslaved person uh, has quite a history that most people obviously don't know about. And that's what this whole segment is about, educating folks about who some of our ancestors are and feeling confident and proud to uh, embrace that information and then to share it. Yes, exactly. Um, Fortune was an enslaved African 
that came to Waterbury and was uh, the was owned by a family of uh, bone setters, which dealt with um, uh, the issues of the bones. And um, that family uh, uh, held him in slavery, and then after he had died, held his bones for over two hundred years before they buried him. So last year, John and uh, you know came into the conversation about how can we honor him? And, you know, 10 years, we did 10 years anniversary about uh, uh, Mr. Fortune and his life. As a child growing up in Waterbury, I remember seeing his bones displayed in the museum. Yeah. Uh, So uh, not really understanding what it was, not really, you know, knew there was some connection there and, and, and totally confused, like, why is this here, you know, um, over the years? So, when you ask the question about how, you know, the anger and the, the the fear that comes along with why are we doing this? It's also freeing because, you know, you, you know, they're, they, the ones who are here today weren't accountable for the ones who were there when they were slaves. So it's a way in which we can start this courageous conversation about how do we heal ourselves and heal this country. So when we do this work, this meaningful work about, understanding our history, our past, it's it's vital. From there, we moved on to an enslaved, unmarked grave in in the Silence Bronson Library, putting that on the Freedom Trail, um, and the courageous individuals who decided to research that um, and, and moving to make that into part of our legacy in the city of Waterbury so that our kids will know that they may not see us in other places, but we are here. Um, we we were here before, uh, we are we were here after, and we will still be here. And our kids, black and brown kids, especially our black children, need to know we were here. We helped build this city. Uh, we worked these lands uh, with no money, and and the the significance of the slaves in in Connecticut, which people say there was no slaves in Connecticut. There were plenty of slaves in Connecticut, and uh, the significance of that is their journey and how they led a path. These were some bold, bold individuals. I won't call them slaves. They didn't even want freedom. They just wanted to vote. I mean, as we dig through the the history of the the, the enslaved in Connecticut, um, you you get encouraged and you're like, you know what? I can go a little bit harder today. I can do this a little bit longer today. (laughs) You know, I can represent a little bit better. So, so that is what, you know, this, this uh, um, individual, but um, fortune was phenomenal and um, trying to find, you know, even in his death, you know, not being buried with his his wife and his children and, um, you know, just the horrific uh, uh, aspect of slavery is something that whether we deal with it or not is as trauma, it's trauma to our DNA. And oh there's gosh. times it's trauma. It's just, you feel it, you know, you it's don't even intergenerational know trauma that we're just yeah. starting to even call it out as that. And a lot of folks aren't even aware that there is such a thing as intergenerational trauma. Again, yes. they, we've been led to believe we've been miseducated, right? We've been given misinformation and in some cases, disinformation about our history mm-hmm. uh, so much so that we've internalized a lot of the anti-blackness that is so pervasive mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, John, I want to ask you, in the case that I'm representing families in St. Louis, the Jesuits, they found these descendants and wrote them a letter. So you can imagine getting a letter. You know, is this a hoax? Is this real? Uh, Someone telling you that they've been able to trace your ancestors and then tell you that your ancestors played such a critical role in Mm. the building 
of one of the most prestigious universities in this country. In any of your work, have you been able to track or trace some of the contributions of these enslaved people that you discovered? Oh my gosh, yes. To, to the point that you're making there, I, actually today, I traced down a descendant um, who lives in, uh, in Virginia. My sister actually lives in Virginia. So I, I sent a package to uh, an office depot there so that she could pick it up same day and take it to that descendant. That literally just happened today. But um, yeah, I do that. I do that often. But uh, these were individuals, um, um, their name, they were descendant of these two individuals named Mary and Thaddeus Newton. They were enslaved in North Carolina, New Bern, North Carolina. Um, they, uh, uh, the father was, Thaddeus was enslaved. Mary was free. They had five children. Um, she wanted to free her husband. She couldn't figure out how to do it. So she took her children. They fled to New York. They started working with Henry Highland Garnett and um, a few other abolitionists. They raised the money, went back and purchased her husband's freedom. Then wow. they, they, they kept going back, getting other enslaved people. They eventually moved to New Haven, Connecticut. And um, they had two sons who, right by around this time, it's 1863, they had two sons who were like, well, you know, we want to fight for freedom. They're listening to Frederick Douglass talk. They're like, we want to fight for freedom. So one of their younger sons, name was Stephen Newton, he goes to Massachusetts because they had a colored regiment. He joins the 54th, so the movie Glory, that he was in there. He dies at the battle at the end of the movie uh, Glory. He dies in that battle. Um, and he was buried in a mass grave, um, the same scene that's in the movie Glory. They had another son by the name of Alexander Newton. He hears about his brother dying, so then he joins the Connecticut 29th Colored Regiment, and he survives the, the war. He, he brought his younger brother with him, who was 15 years old at the time. They wouldn't give him a gun, but he became a servant to one of the officers, so he's on the road traveling. Um, they, they speak. He wrote a book after the war was over, and he speaks about seeing Ab Abraham Lincoln as because the 29th were one of the first regiments to walk through the streets of Richmond while it was on fire at the end. And Abraham Lincoln came through to walk through the, the streets. He talks about seeing Abraham Lincoln. Today, their grave site in New Haven is a stone that nobody knows their story. So it fell over some 80 years ago, broke in half, and it's just buried into the ground. It's covered up with like grass. So my nonprofit, um, we not only found the descendants, so we're telling them all this, this information about how heroic their family was right. um, and how they're aligned to the enslavement and, and the abolitionist movement. But we're also paying for the repair of their stone. We're also, mm -hmm. since the Confederates buried their, their son in an unmarked, in a mass grave, um, we've gotten the, the, the U.S. Office of Veterans Affairs to provide us with uh, an honorary gravestone for their son, Stephen, and we're going to have an unveiling on June 21st of this year to show this new stone and the repair stone of these American heroes in my mind. So, yeah, wow. the families, um, I'm just now kind of getting them all, finding them and getting them all to know how heroic these people were. So, Wendy, uh, John, obviously great work, John, you're doing, mentioned education, that when he goes mm -hmm. in to do lectures to different student groups and different bodies of people and educates them about this history, they open their minds to it. What else do you think we should be doing in this moment? Because I just was amazed at, at how many people were really uh, negative and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, oppositional even to the concept of this mm -hmm. information being discovered, being disseminated, even being talked about. They found it offensive. They uh, took it very personally. What what can we do to, to kind of reverse some of that, to get people to feel proud about their ancestors and to learn, as John just said, some of the heroic 
things that our ancestors uh, have done. For, for us here at the local adult branch, um, it's all about changing the narrative. And I think when we start to tell our story, we tell a story of the celebration. I am a, a, a descendant and my parents were born and raised in Tuskegee, Alabama. I never had a teacher of color since I've been in Connecticut, but we had a rich culture of understanding who we were and what we're doing, roots to Tuskegee University. So the pride was always there. And I think it's up to us at this point in our lives is to say it with pride, to say it with a celebratory pride. Yes, it was it was horrible. I'm not going to say that. But what did it take for them to persevere to have us still be here today? And how can we take that knowledge and apply it to our situation that we have right here today? So I think what you're doing, I applaud you know, K, uh, KBLA for just taking on this conversation and, and, and keeping this narrative going because it's being heard. Our kids are very savvy. They are very social when it comes to media and they seek truth. They seek yeah. truth. And I think when said with the right voice and in the right tone, I think, you know, recently just watching The Color Purple, you know, not to give it a shout, but watching it again, the first time I was messed up. But the second time I'm like, OK, I can receive this a lot better. So as we continue to, you know, do the mur murals that we're doing in Waterbury, working with the, the, the museums and the other partners, Riverside uh, Cemetery, the local librarians, we're going to find more allies and advocates than we're going to find opponents. And and for the, that's it. No, I think that's the excellent point. How do you see this work being integrated, if you do, into the reparations movement that's happening all over this country. So I'm in California and California went through a reparations uh, process, a, a year of meeting, almost two years, issued a thousand page report. The Black Caucus for the state of California tomorrow is going to have a press conference where they're gonna announce some bills that they plan to introduce that are uh, you know, related to the recommendations and around the country, St. Louis, uh, Detroit, Sacramento, uh, Oakland, San Francisco, cities that have uh, created their own reparations mm -hmm. committees and commissions to study the vestiges of slavery. And one of the things that the California Commission did was to also go back and find uh, some of the individuals that were brought into the state of California as enslaved people and looked at their contributions. So when we come forward, I want to talk about how you see this movement of discovery being related to the reparations movement and also Got to have you, John, give folks some tips on what they can do if they want to do this work for their own families. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. conversation about discovering who our ancestors are and not being afraid to embrace our history. And in fact, learning how to be proud of that history. John Mills, who's a software architect by training, has been doing the work of helping folks find their roots uh, for decades now. And Wendy Tyson Wood is the president of an NAACP chapter in Waterbury, which is in Connecticut. And the two of them are working together to memorialize some of the enslaved folks who have been forgotten mm -hmm. uh, by this country. So I have two questions in the last 
minutes of this segment. One for you, Wendy, is about the reparations movement. So we see reparations committees being started, commissions being started. We know there's H.R. 40, which is a reparations study bill that's stuck right now in the House of Representatives. But do you see this work, this work of of uncovering our ancestors being tied into the reparations movement? And if so, how? Yeah, most definitely. I think this work leads to policy changes and it, it leads to a, a bigger uh, um, arena. Um, I, I, you know, I just found there's a proposed bill in Connecticut um, uh, uh, introduced by Representative Nolan, an African-American representative in Connecticut, who proposed a bill for a task force in 2021 about reparations. Uh, we just went through some legislation that first allowed um, African-American and, and Hispanic studies to be in all high schools. You know, you know, back in the day, the high school teacher just, you know, if they were of color, you you learned your history. But now we need some laws to do that. So this works brings upon a conversation. The conversation is then elevated to legislation and policy and changes. And that's where the dialogue is going to continue um, um, the movement in the reparations, because we first have to uncover. I mean, everyone, it's a big mystery. It's not a mystery to us, but it's a big mystery. But once we get it documented. And once it is presented, it cannot be refuted. So where I see the lead is the conversation starts and then we start talking to uh, the policymakers and then we start issuing some legislation. And then that legislation leads us to some more actions and, and how we can get this done together, unified, not them versus us, but us together. Great. Uh, so, John, got to pick your brain here. So we've heard of 23andMe and these other uh, you know, dot com kind of uh, investigatory sites where people can go and got real popular. People were doing their DNA testing, finding that they had cousins and aunts and uncles, you know, finding their relatives. Is that the way you recommend someone go about trying to discover who their enslaved ancestors uh, were? I think the DNA testing is a is a tool that kind of helps along the process. I don't see it as the process. I think I think the the um I think the process should probably start at home. It's like, you should document what you know um, and gather what you have and talk to your own um, uh, family members, um, the, the, the elders in your family, preferably interview them and record that stuff. See, I'm fortunate because my sister was very savvy back in the 80s and she started recording people. She started video recording them once we got video cameras, right? And then she started doing that too. So we got audio tapes and video tapes from 30 plus years ago. But I think everybody should probably start doing that. But um, then once you've done that, formulate some questions. What don't you know that you want to know? Write those questions down. What are those things? Um, and then once you've done that, I think that's when I think you start, you have the questions. I think that's where um, you then start going to the kind of common sites, the ancestry.coms, the familysearch.orgs. Um, and you can start, you can start playing around there. But if if you want to get deeper, I would say go look in your local town, your local municipality, see if they have a genealogy course. They tend to have them, like a two, three-week course. You can learn more deeper detail to help you get to the answer to those questions that you still have after you've done your own homework at home. Um, it, you, call, you could also, if you want to go even deeper, just hire a professional genealogist. You can go to um, bcgcertification.org, and then you can see all the certified genealogists across the country. And, find one to hire. You can hit me up at alexbrianne.org or I have another site, the millions, plural, the millions.org. 
you can go there and hit me up and I can help direct you. But, um, but again, that's the professional route. Um, those yeah, other, say, a lot of folks don't have resources and I know right. those DNA, uh, online sites can be kind of costly for people. So if right. you are sitting at home and want to find out how, you know, mm -hmm. you can do this work without, you don't have the money to spend on one of those, uh, sites, what do you suggest? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, uh, your own homework at home, mm -hmm. and after you get your own homework done at home, then mm -hmm. I think uh, spend something nominal just to get your own kind of understanding of what it is. And again, local municipalities, local towns tend to have like introductory genealogical courses that are relatively inexpensive. And I think that will then get you the path into where you should go from there. I mean, th you know, there's lots of places that will give you information. Libraries have microfilms. You can go to your state libraries and they will help you start tracing down land records and census documents. And you don't have to spend those costs on those, on those sites, but you've got to be kind of savvy about where to go. Um, and if you go to your state library, they may help you. Um, but I tend to recommend to people just find like a real simple, short, inexpensive course to kind of just get you started. After you've done all your own homework, you've interviewed your own people, you've written down all the stuff you know, and you know you've got these specific things you want to answer. Where are my great-great-grandfather from? Who was, who was my great-great-grandmother married to? Like Once you've got real questions and you know what you don't know, um, then start that path. Love that information. I love that advice that you, you've, given to, you've given because that means anybody can do this. This isn't just for rich people. This isn't just, you know, for people with a lot of money. You don't have to have a bunch of letters or alphabet uh, behind your names to do this. Anybody can go to the library. There are librarians there that are trained uh, that can help you on this search. And a lot of these courses, I would imagine, you know, YouTube University probably has some free courses um, that can get you started and there are junior colleges in every community in this country. So there are ways that people can, you know, trace this information, get this information. And I think one thing that we don't do enough of is starting now. Your sister, as you said, was very savvy, started 30 years ago. Uh, I have an aunt. She turned 90 uh, two years ago. And I took the time just to interview her to write you know, her life story in a book that we were going to use, you know, it's like a booklet for her birthday party. And just that, you know, learning about her history, knowing that there are great grandchildren that she has and great, great grandchildren who won't know that. But I mean, there are ways that all of us can start to help tell our family stories by, as you said, asking those questions, interviewing folks, videotaping folks, writing it down, collecting those old pictures, because that history is so so important. I'm thinking of my grandmother and great grandmother who have now passed on that I did not take advantage of. Uh, but when you know better, you do better. So I know better now. So I have to do better. Can't worry about what I didn't do. But all of us have an opportunity right now in this moment to become, you know, historians of our family's rich history. Uh, because as you said, Wendy, as we start to unveil this history and know this history, we can talk about policy. Uh, we can talk about, uh, you know, changing things uh, and hopefully changing the hearts and minds of people. I'm so grateful uh, to both of you. I thank the Washington Post for writing this amazing article about you, John. That's how I found you. Uh, reading is essential. So you learn a lot by reading the paper every day. And that's Indeed. how I found out about your incredible story. And, and you're in that article as well, Wendy. Good luck with the work you both are doing in Connecticut. Uh, can't thank wait you. to see what happens as you guys become a model uh, for the rest of the country and those folks doing this work. So thanks to both of you for joining me today.